There are certain word combinations that we feel so familiar that we express them almost without thinking. For instance, if I uh, say amazing blank, what word would you fill in the blank? Grace. Yes, most of us say amazing grace. Now, who coined that phrase? It came from famous song, Amazing Grace. It's written by John Newton, a former slave trader in England who repented and became an Anglican pastor later. This phrase tells us an important truth about grace. Grace is amazing. When we truly experience grace, we feel amazed. We all know grace is good, but when you experience it in life, it is actually more than good. It is so good. It is too good. It's simply amazing. Today, I want to share with you another expression in the Bible with the adjective amazing. This time is amazing faith. Amazing faith. Yes, not just amazing grace, but amazing faith. We usually use a different adjectives to describe faith, such as someone has a solid faith, or a strong faith, or a mature faith. What is amazing faith? For that, let's turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 1 to 10, and let's read responsibly. I'll read first. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum, their centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserved to have you do this. Because he loves our nation, has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when Centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not come, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with the soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes. That one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. He was amazed at him, and turning to crowd, following him, Jesus said, I'll tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house, found the servant well. Flowers fall, but the words of God last forever. Amazing faith today was the faith of a Roman centurion. His faith was such a great faith that amazed none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Although Jesus saw some impressive faith responses in his public ministry, the only time, in the Gospels, described that Jesus being positively amazed was today. So we asked, what kind of faith is amazing faith? What really pleases Jesus and makes him so happy? By the way, do you want to make Jesus happy? Do you want to make Jesus happy? 
Yes, no? Do you want to make Jesus happy? Yes! You know, nothing makes me happier than making Jesus happy. If I can bring a little smile to my Savior and the Lord, I consider my life successful and fulfilled. And I don't mind dying right there. Before we see attributes of amazing faith today, let me briefly explain who Roman centurions were at the time. They commanded about 80 soldiers, sometimes 100, and uh, 100 in Latin is centum, from which the word centurion came. They were the backbone of a Roman army. The Roman army's basic unit was a legion, about 6,000 soldiers, which was led by legate and tribunes. While the legate and tribunes were political appointment, and they were related to senators and the equestrian class, centurions were commoners. They were not from the aristocratic upper class. They got their position solely on their merit. In other words, they were seasoned soldiers whose bravery was proven and recognized. Thus, they command respect among the foot soldiers. That's why the centurions were the backbone of a Roman army. By the way, do you know what the backbone of the forest? I'll say, tell you right now. Who is our centurion? That's our shepherds. You know, our children shepherd, youth shepherd, and the house church shepherd, all servants, they are the backbone of our church. You know, interestingly, the New Testament mentioned the centurions are more than other ancient, you know, literature. You know, in the New Testament, uh, centurions are mentioned 25 times. And also, New Testament has a very positive views of centurions. Three of them was recognized for, for their faith. First one is this one. Second one was the centurion in charge of a crucifixion of Christ. And third one, centurion name, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Now, what makes his faith amazing? If our faith has the three attributes of amazing faith of this centurion, you and I can amaze Jesus. We can also bless his holy name. And we can make our Lord so happy. So amazing faith has a trio of attributes. Let me give you the outline right away. Humanity, humility, and high faith. Humanity, humility, and high faith. So first about the humanity. This Roman centurion was a humane person. He was a true humanitarian and humanist in the best sense of the word. What made him seek Jesus and his help today? Verse 2, the centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. Centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of Jews to him asking Jesus to come and heal his servant. It was not his own sickness or sickness of his own family, but it was sickness of a servant. He had a caring heart for servant. The Greek word for servant is a doulos, which is a common, common term for slave. Common term for slave. While not all slaves were mistreated, that does not mean the behavior of this Roman centurion was a norm. 
we should remember that most people in Greco-Roman world, they saw slaves from utilitarian perspective. Utilitarian perspective. Slaves had no human right, and they were considered as a property and commodity. Even the great uh, Greek philosopher Aristotle once said, difference between livestock and slave is that the latter is articulate while the former can speak a human language. So this Roman uh, centurion valued his slave not as a utilitarian tool or some kind of means to end, some kind of uh, expendable you know, thing in life or replaceable you know, part of his life, but as a human being. But as a human being. As a, even as a friend. You know, Greek text, for his master valued him highly. Literally was, he was honored by his master. Greek word for that is uh, entimos. And entimos, uh, in honor. In honor. Once again, not many masters back then connected honor to slave. This humanity of a centurion, a centurion was a tall humanity. And tall humanity is a transcending humanity. Transcending what? Transcending socioeconomic boundary. The humanity transcends classism. Humanity that transcends the metrics of a slave and the master. The metrics of uh, haves and don't, do not. Haves not. This Roman centurion was able to make a friendship with a slave. This friendship was not a typical friendship of equals. It's a transcending friendship of unequals. A master honoring slave was a rare. And actually, this centurion's friendship reminds me of someone else who made a gracious offer of a friendship to us. You know who that is? That is our Lord Jesus. In John 15, verse 15, Jesus said, I no longer call you servant because servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I called you friend. For everything that I learned from my, my father, I have made it known to you. So, before we examine our friendship, let me ask you a question. Is your humanity typical or transcending? Is your friendship exclusive only to your kind of people or inclusive, even open to different and difficult people? You know, today's story follows after Jesus' teaching. Verse 1 said, when Jesus has finished saying all this to the people who are listening, he entered the Capernaum. So if you look at the context of today's story, it's this. You know, Jesus actually gave a Luke's version of a Sermon on Mount in the previous section in the Luke chapter 6. And Luke actually shortened it. Do you remember Sermon on Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, which has uh, three chapters, you know, chapter 5, 6, 7? Luke kind of made a half chapter in Luke chapter 6. And actually, he also changed the place from the mount to the plain. So, you know, scholars call it sermon in the plain, sermon in the, on the plain here. Uh, biblical scholars think that actually Sermon on the Mount was the, uh, you know, uh, Jesus actually repeated that sermon many times, many occasions, mountain, plain, you name it. 
And the last today, the last section of Jesus' sermon on Mount or Plain in the Luke chapter 6, look at this, verse 27. Luke 6, 27 says, Jesus said, To you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Mistreat you. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And then verse 35, Jesus repeats, Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. According to Jesus, his followers are called to love everyone, including enemies, because our God loves unholy sinners like you and me. This call for loving enemies now leads us today in this text to critically examine our friendship today. We all value friends, right? Truly, friends make life livable and lovable, right? And Thomas Aquinas said, there's nothing on this to be more prized than true friendship, right? Friendship, you know. Even uh, Frederick Nietzsche said, the essence of a marriage is a friendship, not romance, you know. So I, you know. I was surprised that Nietzsche said that. But anyway, and uh, even in the East, the, Confu the famous Confucian scholar, Mengxia said, this is one of my favorite you know, uh, definitions of a friend, friends are the siblings God never, gave, God never gave you. You know, friends are siblings God never gave you. So friends are de facto siblings. You know, do you wish you have a better, you know, Brother or sister, in Christ, you will find a better brother and sister. I always dream to have a better sister. I have many better sisters in Christ. Hallelujah. And then there is a U.S. You know, uh, vice president, uh, Hubert Humphrey. Uh, he was vice president under Lyndon Johnson. He said, the greatest healing therapy is a friendship and love. Greatest healing therapy is a friendship and love. I think a friendship matters to us during this pandemic more than ever. And we all grateful the friends who call us, uh, FaceTime with us, and uh, Zoom with us, right? And the uh, interesting thing is uh, Humphrey, President, Vice President Humphrey, he was actually a pharmacist before he became a politician. So when he says therapy is serious, friends are medicine to life. Now. Friendship of the equals or among the similar people, that's the typical friendship that even gangsters, criminals, according to Jesus, even sinners have. The friendship for which Christ calls us is not a typical friendship of the world, but transcending friendship of God's kingdom. The only way that we also, this friendship is a friendship even with the difficult people. The only way we can love our you know, enemies comes from God. Because God is uh, merciful and forgiving to us, we can now extend the same love to difficult or what he called extra grace required people. Now, 
That's why I believe house church ministry is so critical and a critical blessing to us. Through house church, we form a friendship with a different people, especially non-Christians. The number one problem I found among well-meaning, Jesus-loving Christians is that we have only Christian friends. We have only Christian friends. You know, so when we invite other people to the church, they bring basically other friends from other church. Without our house church, we will not overcome this inward focus of a typical friendship. We just make meet and make friends with only Christians. And again, that's not different from any homogeneous friendship in the world. And Jesus called us to make a friendship, especially with the lost people, and connect them to God's heart. Now, being a friend of someone in this story points, also, points out also another important fact. You know, friends, they pray for each other. That's what this uh, Roman centurion did. This, he's a transcending humanity, actually led him to be intercessor. You know? So true friends are intercessors. They pray for each other. Right? And uh, Richard Foster, uh, writer of uh, Christian you know, uh, bestseller, The Celebration of Discipline, once said, if, you, if we truly love people, we desire for them far more than Whatever is within our power to give them, that will lead us to prayer. Intercession is a way of loving others. You cannot pray for somebody unless you love them, right? And the loving others with the best you have is prayer because God is the best thing we have. God's resources is far greater than ours. So blessing someone through intercession is very important. And this centurion, that's what he's doing through Jesus today. And here is my personal challenge from this passage today for me. Besides making a transcending, you know, friendship, you know, transcending humanity, this actually called for intercession. And uh, there is a, a congregational pastor in 19th century in America named uh, Austin Phelps. He made a this statement. We are never more like Christ than in prayers of intercession. When you pray for someone, you become more like a Christ. Uh, by the way, Austin Falf is a president of Andover Theological Seminary. And uh, he's, I, I really, uh, I, you know, his other famous saying is that keep your old coat and buy new books. So when I was a poor grad student, his word was inspirational. But uh, he's absolutely right. What did Jesus do on the cross? Jesus interceded for sinners. Father, they don't know what they are doing, right? From beginning to the last breath, Jesus interceded for sinners on the cross. So when we intercede for each other, we are more like Jesus than ever. Amen? And then I want to add one more, you know, word of a challenge from, you know, American, you know, theologian A.W. Tozer. He said this, the church that is not jealously protected by mighty intercession and sacrificial labors will before long become an abode of every evil bird and hiding place for unsuspected corruption. 
the creeping wilderness will soon take over the church that trusts in its own strength and forgets to watch and pray. Intercession is indispensable to the health and growth of a biblical church or biblically functioning church. And on that note, I want to challenge all of you. First, we are not strong in intercession, in my opinion. I hope I'm wrong, but I think, uh, you know, statistics back me up. Because we have a monthly prayer and pray, praise and prayer meeting. Most of you have been there. <laughs> it's about 10%. We have a tithing attendance. About 10% showed up. You know, many people think, I pray anyway. I don't have to go to monthly praise and prayer meeting. Yes, you don't have to come to pray. You can pray at home. But it's a monthly, and we pray concentrated. Anytime there is intercession, if your body is not, you know, excited, eh, I don't, you know, I'm not sure whether you are really in tune with the Holy Spirit. Of course, parents with the children, I don't, you know, I don't want to drag you from your important, you know, uh, duty. But rest of us, this is something privilege. It's not a burden. This is not another church program. You know, I initially say yes to the monthly praise and prayer meeting because some people from Houston told me that uh, that's what they did in their church. Later I found out, you know what I found out? Their pastor doesn't come to their praise and prayer meeting. It was all lay-led people. I'm kind of sucked into something I didn't sign up. You know, I didn't get. But I love it anyway. I long for the day. The Hayun take it over. And I'll just sit in where Hayun is sitting. And I praise, you know, I just pray. You know? Why do I do extra things that other pastors don't do? Okay. I don't mind praying for everyone and with you. My point is this. Intercession, when we really intercede for the people, we are joining Christ. You are not praying alone. Holy Spirit is praying with you. And Christ is really happy to pray with you. Now, this Roman centurion did not intercede, or intercede alone, but with others. He asked Jewish elders to ask Jesus on behalf of his servant. And we hear incredible testimony and intercession from Jewish elders. Look at the verse 4. When Jewish leaders came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man... This Roman centurion, this Gentile, deserves to have you, prophet of Nazareth, to do this because he loves our nation as a built house synagogue. This is the only time in the Bible we see Jewish leaders sincerely, you know, I mean, happily obliged and sincerely vouching for Gentile military leader who is a captain of occupying force in their city. They are telling Jesus that. This guy is an unusual lover of Israel and rare supporter of Jewish religion. And they basically telling Jesus he's a worthy. He's a worthy to receive your miracle or miracles of our God. You know how many of us receive this kind of support from others? You know, are you confident that others will give the same kind of recommendation? Do you know someone whose integrity and heart for God so solid that you not only just you can pray for them, but you actually want to pray for them? Do you have people like that? You know, I have a two group of people when I pray. People that I love to pray and people I have to pray. And my prayer 
is that you move from people that I have to pray to people I love to pray. Amen? Okay. Amen? All right. Pray for me. And sometimes I, don't, I wonder, am I, is it, uh, right after, you know, making that question, I, I wonder, do the forest people, do they feel have to pray for me or love to pray for me? And I don't have confidence. So, it's, uh, you know, I'm speaking to myself, so you're not the only one. So I hope we are all kind of people whose life other people vouch for and say, God, help that poor Pastor Paul. He's trying his best. But Lord, he needs your help. Oh, poor, uh, help that poor guy. You know, I hope you pray with the love. You pray for me with the love. And I, you know, vice versa. Okay, let's move on. Second, second, second attribute. That is a humility. While Jesus on the way to his house, this Roman centurion sent him a second group of people. Look at verse 6. Jesus was not far from the house when the centurion sent the friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This, that is why I have not even considered myself worthy to come to you. After Roman centurion sent Jewish elders to Jesus, he had a change of heart and realized he's not worthy to have Jesus in his house. So he sent a second delegation, his friends, and here we see evolution and progress of prayers. Do you know praying oftentimes changes prayers more than God? Prayer can deepen our own self-understanding and also bring it out self-development. For instance, I was going to share this uh, yesterday's uh, a dating seminar, and uh, it was canceled because of inclement weather. But anyway, I'll share more if you come. You know, when I began to pray for my marriage partner right after my sophomore year in college. At first, my prayer was very vague, and it was until my senior year that the five distinct prayers, items for my wife emerged. So, when you pray, pray out your heart, even without knowing what you really want. It's okay. Keep praying, and the Holy Spirit will guide you and shape your prayers. Amen? So this, Gentile, this Roman centurion, he sent a second you know, uh, a delegation. Now, the main difference between the first delegation and second delegation is this. The first delegation said to Jesus, he's worthy, come help him. <laughs> second delegation said, no, he's not worthy at all. He cannot have you, you know. So first group says it's good. The other one group said it's not. You know, which one is correct? Answer is, answer is uh, both views are correct. Roman centurion was good and worthy compared to other Gentiles and Roman military leaders, but he was never good and worthy compared to Jesus, the Son of God. So here one thing we know, true humility is theological. It's not anthropological. It's a theological. Humility comes from seeing God. Humility comes from seeing God. And Watchman Nee, great Chinese Christian, correctly says, True humility is able to look at God and proceed on. True humility is able to look at God and proceed on. And many people, especially so-called smart people, tend to proceed on without looking at God first. They look at their strengths, their intelligence, their whatever, you know, human, you know, pedigree, and move on, proceed on. 
You know, they are not actually smart nor successful. Because God loves a humble, and God gives a humble the success. Psalm 149:4 says, Lord takes a delight in his people, and what? He crowns the humble with a victory. God crowns the humble with a victory. You know why? Grace flows down to humble people. Grace flows down like a river from high to low. Like a river, grace is a downward. So when we put ourselves you know, at the feet of Jesus, grace comes to us. So when we really open our heart to God with an absolute theological humility, we'll be flooded with God's grace. And St. Augustine once said, if you plan to build a tall house of virtues, you must first lay the foundation of humility. Those of us living in Texas, we know how important foundation is, right? What is the foundation of our faith? It's a humility. The humility comes from looking at God. It's Christological. This Roman centurion, he saw Jesus correctly. He said, Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you. I'm not worthy to have you. You know, here, before explaining further, let me briefly share an important cross-referential point because some of you uh, start reading the gospel at the beginning of the year, right? You guys, uh, you know, are you, how, many, how many of you in the daily Bible reading plan right now? I mean, don't be, praise God. All right, raise your hand. This is something to be proud. We can, you know, yeah, look down on other people. You can, you, can, you can look down on those who didn't raise their hand, their hands. Yep, yep. So let me, if you, those of you uh, read the uh, Matthew's account of a Roman centurion, do you notice something different? There is a little uh, seemingly factual discrepancy. Because uh, Matthew 8.5 says, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, came to him and asking for help. While Luke gave us the impression that Roman centurion never met Jesus in person, Matthew actually told us the Roman centurion came to Jesus and personally asked him. So, what is this? You know, people who don't know the Bible, don't understand the Bible, they say, ah, this is a Bible, it's not trustworthy, unreliable, contradictory, so forth. You have to know this. Matthew was, in fact, an eyewitness of today's story because Matthew is one of the 12 apostles, right? So he was there when this happened. Whereas Luke wasn't there, okay? Luke was a later, you know, became a Christian later. So why did Luke skip this part? And Luke said in the, you know, Luke chapter 1 that he investigated everything, right? So he knows exactly what happened. But you have to know that he intentionally, you know, narrate the story in his own way. Now, why did Luke skip this part of a you know, a face-to-face encounter and emphasize this uh, you know, sort of absence of a face-to-face encounter? The answer comes from Luke's audience. Who was Luke's audience of his gospel? He wrote his gospel for who? His immediate audience is Theophilus. 
and his uh, audience at large was uh, Gentiles who never saw Jesus. Who never saw Jesus. So Luke was teaching the Gentile you know, people, especially interested in Jesus Christ, that faith without seeing was not only possible, but much more is a greater. Do you follow? Biblical writers treated the story of Jesus with a theological focus and flexibility. Both Matthew and Luke emphasize the amazing faith of a Roman centurion that he asked Jesus that you can just heal remotely. Okay? That is supposed to say, but detail-wise, it's a little different. Matthew actually said Jesus came to, I mean, the centurion came to Jesus directly and asked him. And then what is a Matthew's audience? Matthew wrote his gospel for Jewish people. And there, Matthew wants to say, hey, Jesus didn't have a problem meeting with the Jewish people, I mean, Gentile people. You know, you're this very narrow Jewish ethno, mono-ethnic, you know, exclusivism toward the Gentile. It doesn't fly with Jesus. Jesus, the true Messiah, didn't mind talking to Gentile. And not only that, Matthew added a word in verse 11, Matthew 8, 11. Jesus said that many will come from east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in kingdom of heaven. So Matthew said, hey, God, didn't, God is not respectable person. Gentile, Jew, doesn't matter. Anybody who has a faith in Christ will participate in the God's kingdom banquet. Now, on the other hand, look. You know, he actually made a, this Roman gent, uh, you know, uh, he Luke took a more cautious and uh, deferential approach uh, 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 about the Roman centurion that he came, you know, he kind of respected the Jewish sensibility that uh, he didn't even meet Jesus, right? So through that, Luke was telling his, uh, you know, his audience that uh, respect the Jewish tradition, you know, understand their sensibility, you know, for us to have a fellowship with them is a very special thing. Now, all this you know, leads us to the third and final attribute of this amazing faith. That is, this Roman centurion had a high faith in Jesus. What is a high faith? Look at the verse you know, uh, 7. He said, Lord, Jesus, you don't, have to, you don't need to come to my house, but what did he say? Just say the word, and that will do it. That will heal my servant. Just say the word. And then he gave a reason for his faith, that for I myself and a man under authority, with the soldiers under me, I tell this, one go and he goes, and then the one come and he comes, and I said to my son, do this, and they, they, I mean, he does it. What is a high faith? High faith is a faith that transport, transporting faith. That you know that the whatever physical gap between you and God, it doesn't matter to God. If you believe in God, who is a transcendent of all, who is not limited by space and time, your faith can be transporting faith. Yes, it's better than Scotty beat me up. You know, one thing that I envy 
if I have a one machine in my house that I, you know, I'll have a Scotty beat me up, then I'd be everywhere in the world, right? But you know what? Faith is better than that. It transports us, transcends us, and all our circumstances and time and space, and directly to God's presence. Why? Roman centurion recognized Jesus' authority. It's a supreme authority. Knowing Jesus' true identity means recognizing and respecting and replying to his authority. Amen? Knowing Jesus' identity is not just he's my Savior and the Lord. No, more than that. If you say Jesus, your Savior and Shepherd, by that I'm saying I am sheep. Without him, I'm lost forever. I need to hear him every second of my life. I need to follow him every second. Now, question I have. Do you recognize the authority of Jesus in your life? Are you happy for the authority of Jesus in your life? Just like this Roman centurion gave his sort of a life, you know, uh, uh, illustration, do you give more respect to your boss, your professor, than to Jesus? If you receive a personal email from your CEO of your company, would you be excited? No? Would you be elated? <gasps> you know, if you work for whatever, Microsoft, I, I don't know who is the CEO of Microsoft, it doesn't matter. Okay, CEO of, you know, whatever your corporation sends your personal email, wouldn't you say you got so excited? Wouldn't you brag about the people? He asked me to do this. Right? How about authority of Christ? Are you excited about the command of Christ for you? Why not? Every command of God is for our good. God gave a command, not to control us, but to bless us. God's command is good. It's for our good. But many of us do not want to recognize his authority. You know, we don't want to yield our authority to Jesus. I want to hang on to my authority. I want to limit God in my own way. This Roman centurion, he understands identity and authority of Jesus better than any, anybody. Martin Luther once said this, Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so short and certain that a man would stake his life on it 1,000 times. This confidence in God's grace and knowledge of it makes man glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and all creatures. And this is a work of a Holy Spirit in faith. When we really believe in God, we stake everything on his authority and his command. You know, uh, I read uh, Tim Keller's uh, article on the uh, social justice and uh, racism recently. And uh, Tim Keller, at the end of that article, this is what he said. All things are brought, as all things are brought back to under Christ's rule and authority, that's when they are restored to health, beauty, and freedom. Our world will find the justice and peace only when everything comes under authority of Christ. You know, last week I read a, a Harvard Magazine article on the loneliness pandemic. And uh, some people call our crime pandemic as a loneliness pandemic because the loneliness went up 
Before pandemic, it was 18%. Now it's a 61, or 22%, and now 61% of adults, they confess the struggle with the loneliness. And the United Kingdom, they appointed recently Minister of Loneliness. Did you know that? Minister of Loneliness. Okay. Now, and I get it. Social distancing increases of psychological isolation. Yes. But when you have transporting faith, that you know you believe a transcendent God who called himself Emmanuel God, who is with us, so intimate with us, we can transport our worries and cares to him. And we can rest in his transcending peace and grace. Amen? Let me close my sermon with uh, this statement. You know, very interestingly, another time Jesus was amazed was at Mark chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. Jesus could not do any miracle there except lay his hand on the few sick people and heal them. He was talking about Jesus in Nazareth, his hometown. And then what? He was amazed at their lack of faith. When Jesus looked at your faith and my faith, Will he be amazed at the lack of faith or full of faith? I really pray for us we live out amazing faith for the glory of God. Let's pray together.